Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest, Jeff Nadler, Chief Information Officer with Teladoc Health. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. Great to see you. Great to be here. You too, sir. You too. I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation. I'm so interested in you and your company. And so I think that's probably where we start. I want to learn a little bit more about Teladoc Health. So tell us, what does Teladoc do? Teladoc Health is a virtual healthcare company. We have a number of different products and services, including actually some hardware devices that help facilitate virtual visits between physicians and patients. So you're potentially a patient, you're not feeling well, maybe you have a cold, a headache, a flu, an an eye infection. You don't feel like waiting in traffic, waiting two weeks to schedule an appointment. You reach out to Teladoc either by phone or through the web or through a mobile app. And our average wait times are about 10 minutes. Doctor calls you back, video or phone, and treats your issue for you. Yeah, that's awesome. I got a couple of follow-ups here. So I got to tell you a little story. So I actually went to the doctor. I'm notorious for not going to the doctor as much as I should, but I went to a specialist doctor this week. And I'll just say that it's the type of specialist doctor where his average clientele is probably in the 70s and 80s. So I went into this waiting room, okay? And I'm, of course, Mr. Busybody. I got to get to work. I got meetings. I got all these things I got to do. And I go and I sit. I'm there. My appointment's at 11 o'clock. It's like 11.45. And I go up to the lady. I'm like, do you know if this is going to take all day or what's going on here? And I had the sweetest old lady come up to me and say, you know what? I've been sitting here, but I've got time. Go ahead and take my slot. You can go next. Oh my gosh. So that was so friendly. I was so, I felt so good about that. I got in and out. I thanked her profusely on my way out. I was able to make my meeting. But the reason I bring this up is because it would have been a lot better if I was just at home and I was using one of your technologies to be able to, because here's what happened. The doctors, you're fine. You're 41 years old. Everything's (laughs) going to be okay. But I wanted to be safe. And so I'm appreciative of that. But I think once that we have a little more universalness with this technology, I think it's going to be a game changer. So I want to hear about that because you've been there for 12 years. You were there when the company was very formative and you've watched it grow. It sounds like a very few people to the organization it is today. So I'm very interested to know, first, what was that like? What did you see? What's changed? There's a lot, I'm sure. And then I'm interested to know about some of the lessons you've learned about scaling because that's something that a lot of our listeners always think about and talk about. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. It's been quite a journey. I am and feel total wow, okay? That's the best way to sum it up. Wow. I am so lucky and fortunate to have a ride on, to have a seat on the Teladoc rocket ship ride. I have a belief there are better and worse companies to go to work for every day. And I was just super lucky to get the opportunity to join Teladoc when I did. We were about 30 employees We did less than $6 million in revenue that first year. Fast forward, we're a global company. We have over 5,000 employees worldwide, and we're going to do about $2.4 billion in revenue this year. Whoa. Whoa. Growing a company from that size, scaling a company, it's challenging, it's hard, it's stimulating, it's intoxicating, it's fun. 
it's also stressful sure. because you make have real tangible implications. You make a wrong hire, for example, you can't hide it, <laughs> right? And you got to fix it. It ref you got to fix it quickly. It reflects on you a, a, as a leader. But when you're a small team, one one wrong hire can be maybe not a disaster, but it's it certainly can be bad. And then you become larger, right? You have to do more and more. You have more and more responsibility. You have more also more resources to get stuff done. For example, as a tiny company, you don't even have an HR department. You don't have a QA team. You don't have DBAs. Everybody does everything, right? The, and the next thing you know, you have a department. I have a department with multiple levels. I have other leaders making the hiring decisions. And those things propel you as a leader and you get farther and farther away from doing the actual work, which is one of the hardest things for all of us as leaders, which is to step back from doing what you love to do, doing what you've always done and empowering others and guiding others and mentoring others to help them be successful because they're the ones doing the actual work as you transition more to being a leader. But wow, what a, what a ride and, wow. and really fun. What got you here won't get you there. I got to ask, how big was the IT organization when you got there? It was five people, and within okay. two weeks, it was three people. Okay. So I, I built it. from yes, three. You got to see what's working, what's not working. I get that. Exactly. And another really interesting sort of anecdote of having from such a small company to a medium-sized company is hiring is really hard. I was basically a salesperson. I spent so much time recruiting and selling and begging and whining and dining and trying to convince people to come join this tiny startup that had this great vision for virtual, what's virtual healthcare? No one ever heard of virtual healthcare. And people used to say it was a big joke. It was the first thing people would say when you describe Teladoc and what they did, they would say, huh, is that legal? It's interesting. And that's the thing. And you're playing to your audience here. I love talking about hiring. It's unfortunate that you didn't know MSH 12 years ago. We could have helped with some of that stuff. But I think it's a really interesting aspect of how big is your organization now? You went from three, five to three to so the, it's about 1500. Okay. So that's a little bit different. So I want to know one thing tangibly, because as a leader of five and a leader of 1500, very different skill set. I want to know one thing tangibly that you had to change or evolve as a leader, as the organization grew to the scale it did where it's the size it is now. It's what I said, which is not only are you me, myself, a step away from doing the work, but now I am guiding and mentoring leaders to follow the same trajectory right? Which is, and for technology, for people in technology, that does not come naturally. Okay. That's actually a very significant career stumbling block, which is step away from the keyboard. You're not doing the work anymore. You've got to think strategically. You've got to think about scalability. You've got to train your people to step away from the keyboard, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's probably absolutely the most tangible, largest change in the evolution of me as a leader, stepping away from doing the work and working with people, other leaders to turn them into the kind of leaders that can train and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And Jeff, you bring up a good point. And this is one of the secrets to scale. There's no silver bullet, but what I find is that most managers get put into the positions they are in, especially in technology not because they have the behavioral or the leadership acumen or the EQ acumen for managers typically, it's because they've been great individual contributors, right? And that's why it's really important in an IT organization, but any organization to have career paths 
that you don't level up in the organization just by becoming a manager and director of people. You can do it through individual contribution as an architect. You can make the amount of money you want to make through different pathings. But I just think it's so important. One of the biggest mistakes companies make is they will promote people into management positions because it's the next step and people were, were conditioned to believe that's the case. And yet they don't necessarily have the qualities that make you a great leader. They don't necessarily have the qualities that make you great at hiring. And then that can become a problem that kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that continues to kind of eat itself. So I think it's a really good point on your part. It's something I think about a lot here in that I'm only as good as the leaders I can train and develop in our image and then what they do with that. And that's how, if you can do that successfully, that's how you're going to be able to help scale in an organization. That is absolutely spot on and not a well understood dimension within technology companies, but having career paths for, we call them ICs, individual contributors, where they can continue to grow their career. They can take on more responsibility it's just not a management path. And it works very well within technology organizations. And it's real, really important. Love that. So I want to pivot a little bit. I want to talk about this, this Black Swan global event that we had happen a few years ago with COVID-19 and the pandemic. Obviously, that had to impact your business in many different ways, maybe <laughs> positive from a revenue perspective, but certainly changed the way you work. So walk us in. We're March 2020. Give okay. us your kind of thought process of what you're seeing and what the impact was and what it ended up being. February, March, 2020, life is good. We're doing our thing. Our business is growing. We're a market leader. We're starting to have some, we have brand recognition. Um, so February, March, winter, okay. And business is fairly seasonal, right? So cold and flu season begins in the winter, late sort of November, December, goes through January, February, March. And then during the summer months, our visit volumes typically are lower. That's normal. That happens every year. So again, February, March, we're doing our thing. We're doing you know, 12 to 15, 12 to 14,000 visits a day, which is it's a, lot, it's a lot of visits. And then boom. So out of nowhere, no one sees this coming. We basically have the perspective COVID educated the world to the benefits of virtual healthcare. Right. We'd been cheerleading for a decade and boom. Okay. So it was, let's see, April 6th. I remember the day and our visits. So visit volume, visits per day is a business metric that we watch very closely. It helps us to understand, obviously, our, it tied to our revenue, but also we can see how things are doing. So our visit volume, I said, was it daily volume was roughly 10 to 12,000 visits. April 6th, we do over 22,000 visits. So basically overnight, our visit volume literally doubles. And take that just to one more granular level, we're doing roughly one to 1,200 per hour. We do over 2,500 visits on a peak hour during that week. Okay, so thankfully, I'm very proud. I like to tell the technology performed flawlessly. Woohoo! you prepare for that day. You hope it never comes but you test and you stress test your platform and technology performed flawlessly. Many of our competitors went dark because their technology couldn't support because they were also getting huge increases in visit volume. However, here's a little known tricky aspect of our business, which is supply and demand, right? So if we have, if we have too many patients looking to speak to providers, wait times, I'm sorry, too many patients and not enough providers, wait times go up, patients are dissatisfied. 
if we have too many patients and not enough providers, providers leave the platform and that also drives up wait times and they're not happy. So it's very tricky aspect and it's multiplied by 50 because of state licensure rules. We actually have to maintain that same balance in 50 different states. Each state has its own balance of supply and demand of doctors and providers. And we're constantly watching this and tuning it to keep things in balance. This COVID event, Black Swan event, I love that label, completely threw that out of whack. So the volume exploded for a number of reasons, right? Doctors were closing their offices. They didn't want to be, they didn't want to be in, in waiting rooms seeing sick patients. Patients didn't want to go to waiting rooms. They didn't want to sit in traffic as the usual. And, uh, and we spent the next several weeks firefighting, changing our routing rules. So another example is the insurance companies relaxed copays for COVID visits. So that everything was free. That adds to our volume. So we, and we had to, another example is states relaxed some of the state licensure requirements so that a doctor from one state was now allowed to treat a patient in another state. Our whole platform is designed to route and navigate those regulatory rules and requirements. So we were innovating on the fly, changing the routing, changing how things are handled, to deal with this onslaught in volume. It was difficult. I'll say we were clocking huge amount of hours every day. There was no rest on the weekends. We were, as I said, we were innovating on the fly. And here's another interesting aspect, which is, look, the world was on fire. Let's remember, right? It was, people were anxious, people were stressed, people were really nervous about their health. They couldn't go to see a doctor. Doctors didn't want to see them. And we had the perfect solution. So despite all the challenges of the volume and the stress and the innovation that we needed to do to manage everything, this was really rewarding time for us. We actually had something to make people feel better. Yeah, I'd equate it to Zoom, right? Zoom stock price went up too because they had the remote virtual capability that every company all of a sudden needed. It's incredible. I'm a little bit of a business nurse. I want to ask, I want to understand the back end a little bit. So do you have physicians on, is it just the platform or do you have physicians on staff or do physicians join the network? How does that work? So we, and just to be clear, we have several different lines of business for, let's call this our virtual urgent care line of business. Sure. We provide the physicians. So we have our, a network of all US-based board certified state licensed physicians. And depending on which state they're licensed in, that matters for us. We have employed physicians and we also have 1099 physicians. So we mix, we match all in the interest of managing and keeping this supply and demand in equilibrium. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. So I want to ask, obviously, right place, right time. Sounds like a lot was going on. I'm sure a lot was going on in your life personally. You got a lot going on professionally, but the, the company and the timing of what you had built up until that point was ready for it. To your point, the technology, the infrastructure, everything was ready to go. So have you seen that, that acceptance process that happened in 2020, 2001? has continued to keep the company and the momentum of the company going forward, even as we start to move into more of an endemic, or I don't want to say the pandemic's over, but certainly we've moved into a different phase of it, right? Has that momentum carried over time and kept going? So the answer is yes. What I would say, my, my analysis of the situation is it's the education that COVID provided so that people knew 
they could interact with physicians virtually. They knew it was safe. They knew it was reliable. They knew the clinical quality was there. And they also knew how easy it was and how convenient it was. So from my perspective, from our perspective, that kept the volumes up uh, and has sustained it. Certainly the growth has, the growth that we saw in March and April of 2020 has not sustained nor would anybody expect it to, but the volume levels that we hit are actually about now. So it's a little bit early for cold and flu season. They're right about where they were at the peak of COVID. So it's what, it's two plus two and a half years later and it's sustained, the volume has been sustained, but also Teladoc has grown. We have more clients, we have more products, we have more services. So you have to take into consideration all those different variables, but the short answer is yes, it is there. The volume is there. The adoption continues to, and the acceptance continues. Fascinating stuff. All right. We're going to step out of your wheelhouse into my wheelhouse, or at least I like to think that's the case. We're going to talk a little bit about hiring. Okay. And when you and I were talking on the prep call, you had a pretty strong opinion on hiring Art versus science. So I just want to hear your take on this. What's your take? Art, science, gut intuition versus mapping, all that stuff. Where do you sit on that spectrum? Okay. So I sit, so I sit on the side of for the people that I'm hiring, you can screen for technical skills. You can screen for management experience. You can screen for culture. Okay. So you can right away. If you know what you're doing, if you're an experienced interviewer, if you have some good, hate to use the word gut check, right? You don't hire people because they made your gut feel like, wow. So you screen for the things that you can screen. That's the more science side of it. Certainly a technical interview, that's complete science. You either pass or fail. You either know what you're doing. You don't have to get the exact right answer, but you have to know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing. So you can screen that out. Same thing with management experience. You can screen that out. It's pretty easy. There's plenty of management questions you can ask someone to, to figure out. Have they managed people before? Have they managed projects before? Do they know how to think about managing? And to a little bit lesser extent, the cultural side. However, okay, what I think is the most, okay, listeners, here's the trick. <laughs> The most important thing about hiring when I'm hiring is collaboration. Are they going to work well with the team? Tech building and managing technology, which is what I do, is a team sport. Okay, so individual, it cannot be achieved. You're not going to be successful just with individual contributors. So the worst thing, in my view, a person can say about someone else is that they're hard to work with. That's the art part of the interviewing process to ascertain, will this person work well in my environment? Okay. I'm going to get my high school debate team frame of mind ready to go here. So here's my take on what you're saying. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. And in fact, I love that you said collaboration because the software that that we're building, right, centered around the hiring manager and the experience of all the people involved in the interview process is around making that collaboration stronger and more standard. But here's my take, right? I agree with you that the make or miss part of this whole situation is fit within a bunch of different personalities and a bunch of different stakeholders and environments and what they're going to be expected to do. And that gut that you talk about, 
I would make the case in both of those scenarios, there is science behind that gut that you're relying on. You're thinking about previous experience that you've had. You're thinking of previous people you've worked with where it worked and where it didn't. How do we codify that? How do we pull that out of you, Jeff, and understand your experience and what you've seen and what your preferences are and what works and what doesn't in your mind? And how do we codify that when we're sourcing and qualifying candidates? Or how do we give people the opportunity to understand what your team looks like and what behavioral types they work best with and how they've had the type of teams that they've had the most success with in their career? And how do we codify that? See, I think there's a lack of inputs right now, right? That allows us to feel like I get a sense of where this is going, right? But I don't really know how to put my finger on it. And what we're trying to do is build science around that intuition, build science around that team interaction capability, and somehow numerically translate and say, it's never going to be 100%, but we think this is 90%, or we think this is 85%. Now, is this, is this the real world right now? We do a lot of that kind of stuff with our clients right now, but it's certainly an imperfect science to this point. But I think with the proliferation of people analytics and the ability to better understand that mental aspect and that kind of cohesion and fit aspect and put science around it, put numbers around it, put probability around it, I think that we can get to a place where we're making more certain hiring. All right. Your I'm turn. on board you with you. I'm on okay. board. It okay. certainly is a thesis worth pursuing. Okay. But okay, here we go. I know that a person who's going to be successful and thrive in one environment very well might fail in a different environment. Yep. So how do you, you talk to understanding, exposing my environment so that you could understand some of the particulars about the culture or about how we work and who the people are, right? I'm not so sure how you do that when you're when you know, then you have to match, right? So you have to you need the criteria on both sides, basically. And I yeah. think that's I think that's gonna prove to be challenging. I'm on board with the thesis. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Super challenging, super challenging. challenging. And listen, I'll tell you this. I've told many people this. My, my dream one day is to own a professional sports team. That's really where I want to go. And why is that? Because I can combine two passions of mine. I love sports. I love personnel. I love the idea of team and culture and building all that. And I love talent, right? And so what I believe is when you look at any of these sports leagues, they spend billions of dollars to go at best 50-50 to draft an NBA player, an NFL player, an MLB player. And there's a real lack of success. And they would tell me, Oz, you're foolish. You can't do this. We're Trust me, we're spending a ton of money. And I would tell them, you're asking the wrong questions. You're looking at the wrong things. You're weighting them improperly. And if you give me time, right, to think about those things and look through those things and build environments that say this, they were in this environment and it translates well into this environment, or they had this type of coach and it translates well to this, or they have this skill and we have to mitigate and coach and manage against that. I think that you could do a lot better than 50-50. That's my tenant. So I'm with you. That is my life's work. That is MSH's life work. That's what we're working on. And I hope one day, 10 years down the road, we're working together and I'm sipping a beer and we're cheersing because we were able to crack the code at least a little bit because what we have right now in my mind is not good enough. 
So I'm not trying to get to 100%. I'm just trying to get better than what we have. And so we're working on that. I agree. And I think setting it better than 50-50, and then you iterate from there, right? So then you incrementally, and now before you know it, you're at 70, you're at 80. Now you've really cracked the code. And I'm on board. I think it's a solvable problem, but a big problem and not big problems. Listen, what better than to take on the world's biggest problems and try your best to solve them? That's what every entrepreneur looks for. That's my life's mission. We'll keep tabs on it, but I appreciate the debate. And I certainly see where you're coming from. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can change hearts and minds by building technology and providing a service that does just that. So Before now let's keep going. Hold on. I want to pivot on your sports uh, love of sports because my good friend and colleague, shout out to Nick Nanis, who took a philosophy that we shared in hiring, which is made it a really interesting analogy to sports. So our philosophy has always been hire really smart people who are collaborative and easy to work with, okay? As I said, building and managing technology, it's a team sport. You're not gonna be successful with individual contributors, right? So we've I've always focused on finding and hiring the smartest people as opposed to we need a Java developer or we need a Tableau developer. And you can do this whether you're a small team or a large department. So my buddy Nick came up with this analogy to sports, professional sports drafts, right? So in football, for example, some teams will go to the draft looking for a quarterback or a defensive lineman. And when their pick comes up, they fought, they pick the best quarterback or defensive lineman that's available at that time. Other teams will go to the draft, and this is how we approach it, looking for the best player available when their pick comes up. It could be a quarterback. It could be a running back. It could be a wide receiver, but they'll take whoever is best available. And we've used that as our hiring philosophy, which is let's find really smart people. And we'll, then we have the responsibility, of course, to find the right role for that person to make that, to he, to make he or she successful in the role. But I love the fact that you brought up the, the sports, sports and team. I, I was just about to ask about your hiring philosophy. So we got a little insight there. I will tell you, and I don't want to give the secrets away because hopefully if this ever happens, I want to win championships and I want to give all the secret sauce out there. But my take is the biggest problem is organizational alignment from ownership to personnel yeah. to That's coach, right. bring them in at the same time, have the same vision and philosophy, draft the players to that vision, how they want to be coached, what the program is, what the nutrition is, what your idea of success is, how you're going to build your team. That's the first step. And I think there's yeah. a lot of things that come into it from there, but you have to have that alignment and you can't kowtow to the pressures of the fans or the media or all these other things. So I don't know. If I ever have a team, I'm probably going to be more Jerry Jones than I am, I say Mark Cuban, but <laughs> I definitely going to be heavily involved. All right, let's ask. So I heard a little bit about your hiring philosophy. So you are looking for best talent available. You it sounds like you believe that we can hire behavior and train most skills. Is that fair? That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Not to oversimplify it though, right? The person has to ha has to have some of the skills we're looking for. Yeah, everything's right. a balance at the end of the day. I think that yeah. I, in our company, we have evergreen roles that we hire talented people in a pipeline at all times. We want to be interviewing those at all times. But of course, we hire for a need too. And I think I'm more likely to hire somebody that doesn't have the best resume, but is the right character and personality. But to some degree, especially if you want to hit the ground running mm -hmm. and not have a huge ramp up time, you have to have some level of semblance of Absolutely. experience. That, that exactly. Aligns. We're on the same page about that. Yeah. So you, when I ask you about the most memorable interview that you've taken part in, whether you were interviewing or somebody was interviewing you, what comes to mind? Can I tell a story that's less about the content of the interview and more about the interviewing process? This is your podcast. Take it away, Jeff. All right. You tend to remember the interviews that where you were offered and you accepted the job. 
So here's a, here's a lesson, happy ending, but it's less about the content of the interview and it's much more about the experience of the interviewing process. Here goes, I was in a role I didn't love, but hadn't started looking yet. And I received an inbound from one of the large, most well-respected executive search firms. He had a CTO opportunity. I wasn't a C, I, was, I didn't have a C in my title yet. Would I be interested? Of course I'd be interested. <laughs> Send me the description. So what I got was a, a job description for a .NET architect with a CTO title. Politely declined saying, hey, I don't think it's a good fit for me, but I'll ask around my network. Uh, that's that. He persisted. He came back, reached out again, telling me he thought it was an excellent fit for me. And I thought to myself, maybe I misread the job description. <laughs> Took another look had the exact same reaction. I'm a .NET architect. I never was, and I never want to be a .NET architect. Called them back. Thank you for thinking of me. Again, I just don't think it's a good fit. He persisted and asked me to come to breakfast with him. And I'm like, how do you turn down breakfast with a guy from one of the leading executive recruiting firms? Met him for breakfast at a nice hotel in Midtown. And while he was convincing, I wasn't convinced. <laughs> All I promised was that I would think about it. I get back to the floor where my office was. I get back to my office and something was up. People were milling about, not in a good mood, sad faces, looks of concern. It turned out that while I was at breakfast, the attorney general for that state, and I'm not gonna leak anything, had announced an indictment against the business unit that my department was supporting at the company that I worked at. Charges were serious, okay? So I immediately called the recruiter back <laughs> and that I just had breakfast with and said, I'm interested, put me in, let's go. In the end, okay, I, the punchline, for me, this is a absolutely the most memorable interviewing experience. But the punch, the punchline was, is that the job description was just badly worded. It wasn't a .NET architect role. And it was an amazing opportunity for me. It was my first sort of C-level in healthcare. I was there for many years and I've been a CIO, CTO ever since. So that, that, um, that makes me, so there's a bunch of things that come to mind. Okay. So first off, say this all the time, job description is 10% of the job. If that, the resume is 10% of the person, okay? And why is that? How do most people get job descriptions? They go and they pull them off online. Yeah, this kind of works. Maybe change a couple of words, change the company name. And yet people like you are looking at that as a arbiter of, is this role a good fit for me, okay? Right. I don't know if you communicated that you felt like it was a .NET role. I am the, my, my peer or whatever you would call them in this executive search firm. I am forlorn that they weren't able to see through your concern and help articulate why it is in fact a better opportunity then you realize and that this job description they were using was actually holding you back and holding the process back. But I'm really glad that it had a happy ending. And this is why I think, right? Timing is everything. But this is why it must have been a good breakfast too. But this is why I think people in our industry have to take so seriously what they're doing, representing of their client, representing of the opportunity, articulating in a way, listening to you and what motivates you and managing the process in a way, because that job changed your life. 
that you walked in and listen, we talked all the time about, hey, you never know when you're talking to a passive candidate, what just happened? Boss just yelled at him, car, flat tire. They might be in a different headspace. You, when you talk to people, you have to be your, put yourself in their shoes and understand that their situations are different and listen to them. So it looks like it was a good thing that this guy kept being so persistent and pushing on you that this role was a better fit. Um, Amazing. I think we're he could have made it a lot today. easier. Say it again? We're friends today. So it's 20 years ago. And we're friends. To, I'm still in touch with him. He actually did a search for me not that long ago. He was persistent and it paid off. And to your point, you just don't know. You just don't know. And if you maintain an open mind, there are opportunities to the left of us. There are opportunities to the right of us. They're not always straight in front of us. And that was karma. That was yeah, And I just think this is a space that just like healthcare, you know, just like pilots. Okay. I think you got to get it right. I think you got to do it well, because if you do it right, there's so much on the line from a career and business perspective. And I think so much it gets, it feels like a commoditized transaction. I'm not saying that's the case with your friend because yeah. he's probably listening to this podcast. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in the hands of many, that ends up happening. And I think that's a damn shame. So I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad you're still friends and just goes to show how deep and long these relationships can be. When you so do, them well. do, you have, do we have time for another story a little bit similar with some thought-provoking... Jeff, I already uh, told you, this is your podcast. You a run- thought-provoking tale. Okay. A CTO position at a large health system. Okay. Made it through many rounds of interviews, all their senior executives. I thought I was a good fit for the role. I got great feedback from the recruiter after each round. This is going great. And this is such a memorable experience. So they had me meet, and I'm curious what you think. They had me meet with a psychologist who did a psychological profile on me. It was totally hmm. weird. It was off. Have you heard of these? I've heard of behavioral assessments. I've heard of people yeah. doing things, but I've not, I don't know that I've heard of a specific psychologist brought into the interview to do a profile. That's exactly what it was. And I, it's funny. It, it was weird. It was a little off-putting. And I happen to be aware that I don't know, and maybe I read this after the fact, but at the time, and this is probably also about 20-ish years ago, there wasn't data demonstrating that there was any value to, to these kinds of behavioral profiles. And maybe they've gotten a lot better. Who knows? I haven't followed it. But back then I was aware this was a little bit, a little bit fringy. So the guy who was asking the question, the psychologist, I found him to be really unengaged and uninterested. Okay. He would ask me wide open questions. I swear to God, this, I remember this question, tell me about your childhood. And then just wrote down my answers, not even looking up from his pad. He was just literally transcribing my answers. So I wasn't offered the job, okay, which obviously makes it also a little bit memorable. But the feedback was that I was arrogant, okay? And that stung. Like, that was a blow. I'm not an arrogant person. I'm actually quite humble. But, or and, after that experience, what I struggled with in that experience was how do you balance the need to be confident and have answers to interviewers' questions without coming across as arrogant? And by the way, also, how can you lead a several hundred person department without a healthy amount of confidence? Yeah. So interesting anecdote, very memorable for me. And I always think about that when I'm interviewing or when I'm interviewing other candidates, if they come off as a little arrogant, that's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. I just think here's a couple of things. So I'll go back to this. 
it sounds like they had a gut intuition rather than a scientific <laughs> intuition. So that's one problem. Second problem is a lot of companies run into this and I get it, right? You want to do everything you think to make the best hires possible, but you can't do that at the behest of a great candidate experience. And you did not have a great experience with this guy looking down at his pad and asking you about your childhood. So come to think, what if you even would have gotten offered the job? There's no guarantee you would have taken it because that is does sound very off-putting. I got to imagine if it's not like you were interviewing to be part of the FBI, you were interviewing to be the CTO of a healthcare network. That's not great experience, right? And as much as they must have thought that it was going to help make a good decision, at the end of the day, 20 years later, you're still talking about how bad of an experience it was. So that was Correct. actually Bingo. what they ended up doing. That's right. Bingo. Let's talk about candidate experience. I think it's important. Sounds like you think it's important. What do you do at Teladoc or what would be the experience that you want candidates to have when they come to interview to be part of your organization? I'm looking for, I'm looking for leaders. I'm looking for, we talked about collaborative, got to be able to work with other people. Can't be one of those people that other people don't want to work with. That's a, that's a showstopper. Sure. Got to be smart. We've covered that. You got to be a go-getter and a do-gooder. Like, those are the kinds of people that other people want to be around and sure. other people want to engage with and other people want to solve problems with. And then for me, I'm hiring leaders. I want to explore their leadership style, their leadership experience. Tell me about a time where you were dropped in the classic interviewing question. You're dropped in the jungle. Give us an example. You weren't given any guidance. You didn't have your compass. What was the situation and what did you do? Because yeah. as a leader, everyone's going to look at you. I tell my leaders all the time, everybody's watching you. Yeah. How you address this situation, how you describe this situation, how you talk about this, how you do this performance review. Guess what? Everyone's watching you. You're performing. 100%. And people are going to model your behavior. So don't, when you think about yelling, think twice. You're going to, the people are going to model your behavior. 100%. So a couple of my, those are a couple of my thoughts on. Yeah. So do you do anything unique in the interview? Like I've had some people tell me that they like to take a potential direct report and their significant other to dinner. I've had people go to lunch because they like to see how they treat waiters. I've heard of people doing panel interviews with 10 different people. Is there anything unique that you do in the interview process at Teladoc that stands I out? So the answer is no, and I wouldn't consider any of those things that you said terribly unique. Yep. Taking a strong candidate and his or her spouse or significant other out for a meal, that's not unique. Sometimes multi-person interviews, meaning three people interviewing one candidate, that's normal. Yep. I wouldn't say we do anything terribly unique. I think that it, I think it's important as part of the interviewing process, and you actually hinted at this which is we have to think about the messaging that we're leaving the candidate with. We have to, we have to, to any candidate for any role, you got to convince them why Teladoc's the best place on earth to work and why my department is the best department to work in. Yeah. That's part of the interviewing process. I say this all the time. I think recruitment at the end of the day is marketing, right? And that's because when you have an opportunity for your company, you're marketing it out to the external workforce to get them excited to want to work at your company. And then when you find that candidate that you love and you're showing it to the hiring leader, you're marketing it to them on why this person's a fit. And so to your point, there is some level of, no, listen, I, you want to be authentic. You don't want to paint something as it's not. But at the same time, there is some level of, this is why this is an enticing place to be. This is why this is an enticing team to work with. This is why this is desirable and something that will be great for your career. And if you're not taking that approach, if you're looking down at your pad and writing notes about their questions, then you're probably not going to get the best talent. That's just the bottom line. 
I totally agree. And I come back to something that we talked about a little bit early, which is I feel so fortunate to be working in an industry like healthcare, where our mission is to help people. Not everybody has a mission as part of their day-to-day experience in their career. And a mission that's actually out there, it's very rewarding, right? It's special to wake up every day and be like, I'm helping people today. And you want to find people that want to be part of that. And if you can do that, then you're going to have a great technology organization. It's self-reinforcing. It's absolutely self-reinforcing. And yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the technology is what drives your company at the end of the day. So if I'm a technologist right now, of course, there's the keep the lights on activity, but also from a product perspective, like it's a technology company. And so if I'm a technologist, that excites me, that entices me, because as much as the healthcare aspect's great and important, technologists also want to work on great technology and build great things. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yep. Listen, we all miss from time to time on hiring. So when you miss on somebody, is there a theme that you can look back on? Or is there something you look back on that you're like, ah, if I just would have done this or asked this, I might've been better off. No silver bullets here. As I said, you can screen for technical skills and generally hit it. You can screen for cultural fit and do okay. And you can screen for management experience. And what I have found my biggest misses, and I have a good funny story for you in a second, which you've probably won't be the first time, but many of your audience might be hearing for the first time. I think at the end of the day, also anyone can find two to three references that'll say great things about them, which is also why I love hiring people who, you know, are referred by someone who I know and trust, right? That's a great way to hire people to reduce some of that ambiguity. But at the end of the day, I think my greatest misses were they weren't collaborative. They didn't get along. They were arrogant or self-promoters. And those are the greatest misses. But here's a great story. This happened within the last year. Uh, We were recruiting for a role. We found a guy. Everybody loved him. Super smart. Passed all the tests. We were badly in need of the skill set. Made him the offer. He accepted it. First day, I get a call. Hey, the guy who showed up isn't the guy we interviewed. What? What are you talking about? Different guy, same name, different guy. Can you believe someone had the, you know what, to fake interview for a position and then send his buddy or someone who paid him to interview for him into the role? I'd love to, I'd love to tell you that is not something I've heard before, but I've absolutely heard that before. I would, in fact, if I could tell you the lengths I've heard of both from other industries and even sometimes that trying to happen here in our company where they're trying to snow us. Yes, unfortunately it does happen. And we do a lot of hiring out of India as well. We have two big offices out there. And sometimes you'll see some really crazy things when it comes to how people are representing their experience, showing up for the interview, somebody giving answers during an interview, gaming the system to try to get a job. And it's, it's unfortunate that it happens. I know most companies, including ours, do everything they can to vet it. But sometimes you got to give some of these guys and gals credit because uh, some of the lengths I've heard of to go to to pull some of this stuff off is really incredible. I yeah, don't, see how, not I don't I, see how you get away with that. Personally. I don't understand what the long-term plan is. <laughs> it's, what was the plan here? Like he shows up the first day, it's an immediate understanding. But for whatever reason, it's out there. And uh, hopefully it's minimizing and getting less and less over time. Hopefully technology is helping us with that. But at the same time, it's definitely something that, especially earlier on in my career, was very prevalent. I want to ask you, I gotta. I, I usually ask, what's a day in the life like? But usually when I'm talking to C-level executives, it's meeting this, meeting that, meeting this. So tell me a day that when you get home at the end of the day, 
right? You just feel so good about that day. It was such a productive day. What happened that day? What's going on that day? What are the things that make you know, it great? I think a couple of things. So one of the things I love as a technologist is being in a room and solving problems with other technologists, right? That's the joy. You got a big, usually, hopefully a challenging, complex problem. You need people with different disciplines. You bring them together. Maybe you order some lunch in. you got your whiteboards and the creative juices start flowing in a problem-solving mode. And I think to my core, I'm a problem solver, right? Give me a problem, I'm in my zone. I know how to solve problems, that's what I do. So I think that that's probably among the most rewarding end of the days. Another one that I would say is, and this also comes with being a leader, like I'm not an attention seeker. I don't have, I don't need all the credit. I don't have to be the one at the end of the day. But when I see someone that I've hired, coached, mentored, you know, who, you know, is working for me, shine in either solving a problem or helping someone or coming to the rescue, I get such sort of joy and pride and it makes me feel good. Um, At the end of the day, I would say those are a couple things that really make me feel good. I would say also about day in the life. One of the things that I'm so blessed with is there is no typical day. Every, pretty much every day is almost completely different. Meetings, leading meetings, attending meetings, one-on-ones with my directs. There's a lot of financial aspects of what I do. There's the problem solving, the architecture. There's trying to keep current. The technologists have to stay current. I've always said technology executives don't age gracefully right? But you got to stay current. You got to know what's going on and things are super fast moving in technology. And you also have to carve time out to be strategic, right? So in technology, you could be, if you don't, if you don't try, all of your time will be carved out and consumed by tactical day-to-day needs and fires. Yeah. You got to set time aside for that. You have to set time, thinking time, strategy time. You have to make sure you build that in your day. Otherwise you'll just be putting out fires all day, especially if the scope of your job is big enough. I think it's a fantastic answer, especially the problem solving really resonates with me. People have asked me, what is it you love about your job? And I say, I mean, I get to come in and solve problems with people I love and respect, some right. in many cases, friends, and That's they right. pay me to do it. So yeah, right. I really like working. It's fun. I fun taking on tough challenges and problems and doing with people that you enjoy. So I'm right. so with you on that. And I really appreciate that. Is there anything you're doing right now at Teladoc that you're really juiced about, really excited about, what maybe a program, a product, something that you're working on right now that you're really pumped about? One, one thing I'm working on that I'm really pretty excited about is designing a, it's for a new application that we're building. So we're right now working on designing a database architecture. So we're expecting this particular application to be very read transaction heavy. And so we're planning an architecture that has a lot of what we would call secondary read nodes downstream from the read, write primary node. And uh, it's nothing groundbreaking or earth shattering, but when you model like the transaction volume and the performance that you're expecting, and you start to put it into a test environment, we built some proof of concepts and it seems to be working as planned. It's exciting. And I'm really looking forward to putting this, uh, you know, this application into production, seeing how it performs. Because look, performance is really important, right? We just barely touched on scale. We talked a lot about the, the scale of Teladoc's business. But in order to produce those 20,000 plus visits a day, our technology is working pretty hard, pumping a lot of transactions through a lot of different terms and systems and databases. And it's complex. It's comp- these are complex problems that we get to, uh, we get to solve. 
And, and we don't always get it right, but when we don't, we fix it and move on and keep, keep iterating, keep making things better and faster and scale. It's been the story since I joined in 2010. The volume's coming. The volume's coming. Our CEO used to scare the crap out of me with his projections on what the future volume was going to look like. And I'm like, what? I practically, I remember falling off my chair. And you know what? He was dead right on he was all right. of his predictions. He was right. And listen, I love that. I'm excited for you. I want to hear about the outcome of it, but it's very obvious that you're passionate about your work and your people and the technology. So that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing how that goes. I got my one last one for you and we'll wrap up. I want to ask you, if you were able to amplify one bit of advice from early on in your career that you didn't have, that maybe you know now, maybe for some of our early in career listeners, what would that be? Can I give you two answers? You can give me three answers if you want. I would say learn how to be an advocate for yourself and your accomplishments without, but don't be an arrogant promoter. Nobody likes arrogant self-promoters. No one, and no one's going to trumpet your accomplishments for you. So there's a balance. This And no one ever talked to me about self-promoting and how to balance and not be an arrogant self-promoter, but to take credit for accomplishments. And I think it's important. I think it's important from a career perspective because you have to, if you want to be tapped for that next promotion and that next leadership opportunity, people have to know you. People yeah. have to see you and see your accomplishments. That's not taught. You don't learn that in school. The second thing I would say is find a mentor. People are out there. They want to help. Don't be afraid to ask for advice or guidance. So we all find ourselves, even me, at this point in my career with difficult situations that are either unfamiliar, I don't know which way to go, left, right, down the center. But there are people out there that want to help us navigate and have some wisdom. There's wisdom out there that we haven't tapped into yet. So look for it. Look for it and find it. I love that. Fantastic advice. I too hate self-promoters. And on a completely unrelated note, please listen to Higher Learning, the number one hiring podcast <laughs> on Apple and Spotify when you get a second. Jeff, I really appreciate the time. Good insights, great laughs. Looking forward to spending more time together. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Oz. This is super fun. Have a good really one. enjoyed it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.